Welcome to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast number 193. Myself, Stuart Court, as ever, is joined by a man who's cooked for someone who's currently in the jungle in Australia with brazenly white hair, Mr. Alan Nathan. How are we, sir? That's good. He's got the white hair, just to be clear. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, 12 yeah. weeks into fatherhood, <laughs> it's, not, it's not getting that bad just yet. But uh, no, I'm good, Stuart. So yeah, we got is the big episode. It's, it's, it's the state of the union when when we uh, Avengers assemble uh, for this episode. So uh, yeah, it's good. people are in for a treat on this one, I'm sure of it. Yeah, uh, joining uh, myself and Adam, as uh, Adam has alluded to, last year we did a couple of these, I think, uh, different varying moods and tones and uh outlooks uh mr jackson bevins how are we sir i'm doing great really appreciate you guys having me on and mr rob staten how are we very good fellas uh great to be here and uh, lovely to speak to you all again how, uh first off obviously i didn't see much of it um on sunday how was munich i think you made the trip over didn't you rob yeah it was it was a great trip and uh it was very cold unbelievably cold much colder than it is in england um, there isn't that much to do in Munich. I've been to Munich before, but I've never been into the centre of Munich, and I, I didn't realise there's not that much to do unless you want to get pissed. So, um, <laughs> the, you know, thankfully, a lot of the NFL fans who were there were quite obliging, and, and that's exactly what they wanted to do. <laughs> um, but it's not actually, in terms of like big European cities, it's not some, I don't think it's somewhere that you could probably go for much more than, a, you know, a couple of nights. Um, but the stadium's amazing. It was a real pleasure to be there and a privilege to be there, even though the Seahawks lost. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the trip. It's probably the I've, I've seen the Seahawks lose quite a few times. People have told me I'm a jinx, uh, but this was the first time I've seen a Seahawks loss and actually come away feeling like I enjoyed the experience. So it was it was a good trip. Yeah, one thing I am curious about is, and, and I don't know if you guys went to the Seahawks game in London or not, but you you guys have certainly had enough exposure to the NFL over there. Uh, Rob, what was your experience like? Like, how would you compare the Munich fans' response to an NFL game being there to London fans? Well, the first thing I would say is that nobody in, in England or Germany would, well, there'd be very few people who'd be prepared to admit this, but the Germans and the English are very similar. They are almost identical. So one of the funny things I think that's, that's come out of this whole experience is the American journalists absolutely shocked and stunned that the German fans were singing John Denver. And, and I was kind of sat there and it was kind of a, a, quite a, a banality, frankly, that the Germans were singing John Denver, having been to numerous football, cricket, boxing events. I know they do it. They don't, and that everyone's singing Sweet Caroline. And, and you know, you, you go to these places and if that came on, I've been in a rugby stadium in Salford where they play the John Denver uh, Country Road song as their like anthem and everyone's singing it there. It's just what we do in Europe. We love to, you know, have a beer and sing some old songs. And and I, I just couldn't believe it. Everyone was as if this was some grand event. You know, Pete Carroll was talking today about it being an emotional thing, that <laughs> that he's he's hoping that the Seahawks fans in Lumen Field might sing a song together. This is just what we do over here. So it, it was very similar to the London thing. The atmosphere... You know, as- as as Americans, we're we're always shocked when another culture does something interesting. We, we, it's just like, oh, this is amazing. Did you guys know? Did you guys know that people in Germany sing that they know they English have music? Song? They have music over it's, there. It's like it's like the way that national reporters, uh, you know, 
react to the footage of throwing fish down at Pike Pike Place. You know, uh, anytime they use that B-roll for Seattle primetime games, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing. You're just like, yeah, I've been throwing fish every day for hundred years. Just, just to put a bow on how it compares to London, I thought it was extremely similar and just a, a very similar vibe. And like London, there were more Seahawks fans there than, than any other team. You know, the, the following in Europe has exploded because the, the game has exploded at a time uh, when the Seahawks were becoming quite good for the first mm. real time, you know, under Pete Carroll and with the LOB and Marshawn and, and Russell Wilson. So um, there's a huge following over here. It was a great trip. You know, th- this sums it up, okay? So as I was getting off the plane and was going back to my car, this guy started talking to me. He was with his wife. He got a Mariner's hat on. So he, I, he's been, he started talking to me about it. He saw that I had a Seahawks hat on. We were talking. And I said, oh, what did you think of the game? And he went, oh, we couldn't get a ticket for it. We just went over and watched it in a bar. And I thought, this is incredible. This Seahawks fan just had to be there. He just had to be in Munich that weekend. He didn't even go and see the game. He just watched it in a bar. He could have watched it at home. But he actually went yeah. all the way to Munich just to be in a bar in Germany <laughs> near the team. So I think that's um, it's indicative. And he was English. So it's indicative of how passionate people are over here for the Seahawks. And um, yeah, I thought it was very, very similar to, to the Wembley-London game when Seattle beat the Raiders. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the Sweet Caroline stuff and Take Me Home, there's two songs I play within 10 minutes of kickoff at uh, Cough City because obviously uh, Take Me Home especially, we've adapted ourselves for a ground that no longer exists. Um, but that's the soccer thing, because I've been to an MLS game, and it's just a uh, shout-out Andy Robinson, who said it's everything is everything's familiar, but everything's different. And that is, like, the thing. Like, it's a soccer thing. Like, the, we just sing. We usually make songs with the tune, but we just sing in unison more often than probably people that are comfortable. I, to look, some of the songs are very creative. I hope you don't mind me. So I'll, I will sing you a bit of a song now um, that is sung by the the, ta- the, t- the local team to where I am now in the town I live. If I had the wings of a sparrow and the great dirty arse of a crow, I'd fly over Hillsborough tomorrow and shit on the bastards below. And then it goes on from there. You know, and they sing that every game, and I just think it's hilarious. You just don't have that anywhere else. It is kind of about that football culture. And, and, and you know, the John Denver thing was great the weekend. If, if Americans were impressed by that, you know, Wembley last year for the Denmark game when they played Sweet Caroline when England won uh, to get to the final was like 3,000 times what that was at the weekend. That was amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. Um... What was your view on the game then, Rob, since you were in the stadium? I mean, this it seems like the turf has been the, the shield for what was a pretty flat, disappointing performance from the Seahawks. Yeah, it, it, they just lost to the better team on the day. I, I didn't come away with any overly negative feelings about it. Uh, Tampa Bay came out and, and ran the ball and... The Seahawks, first and foremost, you know, it's not because you have 53-man roster. You don't pick a start at 11. You know, you don't really have a team selection of note, but actually they've got the team selection wrong, you know, mm-hmm. by not having Brian Monet and LJ Collier um, available for that game. They just came and ran the ball down the throat. It was very noticeable that the offensive linemen for Tampa Bay in the first quarter kept turning to their sideline and were doing this, you know, feeders. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep running the ball. They're not, they're not, they're not going to be able to stop this. And that was true. And I think um, 
you know, they once that was established and they were running the ball, it's very hard to stop Tom Brady. He was barely touched all game. They got themselves into a hole. Yep, very valiant comeback at the end. They gave themselves far too much to do, though. They deservedly lost. Um, I wasn't overly concerned by anything I saw in that game. I think they'll learn from it. I think this is still, we still have to remember this is a team that is already punching well above its weight. And, you know, they probably uh, deserve the benefit of the doubt in, in going out to Germany and, and, and putting it a, a flat performance. The only kind of minor thing I suppose that was frustrating is it feels like for the last couple of games, they've started very conservatively on offense and have then adjusted as the game's gone on. And you give them credit for adjusting, but I'd like to see them maybe be a little bit more aggressive early in games, not try and feel the way into it as much, not try and get themselves into a bit of a hole, just come out with some, some real creative game plan and try and, you know, throw a couple of punches at the opponent first, not necessarily waiting until round six to do it yeah and, and Jackson you, we've spoke many times in this pod about me Adam and Rob staying up till 6am to watch Seattle what's it like getting up at 6am to watch the Seahawks on Sunday you know it was actually kind of awesome um you know once you know I I usually take about 45 minutes or so before the game to prep the article and and just kind of center myself in in terms of how I want to talk about it and some certain things that I get to, and I should have done it the night before. So I definitely <laughs> like woke up at five 30 and was like, Oh shit, I gotta, you know, I don't want to be free will in this thing, but it, it was awesome. Cause then the game was over. I take 30 minutes to kind of process it. And then I just get a whole day at NFL football to watch, which was awesome. So I was able to watch the entirety of that bills Vikings game, um, which is as much fun as I've had watching regular season football since probably that, Rams Chiefs game from a few years ago like that was just awesome to watch two really good teams some amazing plays being made in that game uh and so so that part w- was fun it was it was kind of cool obviously would have been better if if Seattle had won that's true any week I I liked it man uh just from being on the west coast in the United States it was pretty cool to just have the Seahawks done by 10 a.m and enjoy the rest of the Sunday yeah it is, it, is, it is a different experience when we watched the full day of Red Zone and now we've got the bye week and another full week of uh, yeah. NFL games. Adam, we said last week on the pod that if they win, then it kind of changes the conversation. But if they don't, it's kind of just keep on the tracks kind of thing. That is exactly the vibe coming out of the game, isn't it, on Sunday? Yeah, I think two things predominantly. Firstly, it's really important and, you know, not that we're, you know, geniuses or anything, but I guess in trying to do the pod, we try and look at a more general NFL view, whereas people can be in their echo chamber for their team. But I think it's really important to try and watch games and view results outside of a vacuum of of your own team. And ultimately every team in the league right now, because of the parity there is dropping a bollock and having a clunker every now and again. And maybe that was, this was our time. You know, we won four in a row. I can't imagine there's many more than five or six teams that have won four games in a row this season with the way the league's gone. So look, it happens. We had a bad game. It didn't quite work out. They still gave themselves a chance at the end. So fair play to that. You know, they got themselves back in it. So I'm, I'm not overly worried about the loss from that perspective. And if anything, I was uh, I was watching Moneyball of all films last week, and um, there was a line that stood out to me that I'd forgotten about. But it was basically Billy Bean talking about, um, you know, unless you win the final game of the season, you're a loser ultimately. And you know, it's not quite the same in, in soccer because of the league situation. But watching the Seahawks in the last few years, we've been probably 
quite negative. And I imagine there's people that have stopped listening to us because of the negativity or the perceived negativity. But ultimately, that's come from a place where I have just had no courage or faith that the Seahawks are going to win the final game of the season for a long time. And to be honest, I've basically not checked out because we do the podcast, we watch the games, we try and talk to people and analyze it. But from a, a standpoint of what do I feel about this game? How much do I care? If I don't feel like that end goal is in sight, ultimately, I've kind of, you know, I'm going to watch the game and go to bed. I don't feel like that this year. And it may not be that we win the final game this year, but I kind of see the Seahawks on a road to winning the final game of a season at some point now. And I was frustrated by losing on Sunday, but I was in a way quite pleased to be frustrated, Rob, because I've not had that for a while because I've been kind of, you know, we've spoken about this at great length on a variety of shows, Rob, that it's nice to feel something again. Uh, And even a lot, it's it's nice to feel the sadness of a loss because that's kind of what half of sport is about. Yeah, you know, I I had a buddy tell me one time about, this study that they do regarding vacations and they find that people get like 95% of the enjoyment from planning and anticipating their next vacation as they absolutely actually do while they're there. And I think that applies here because yeah, obviously the goal is to win a super bowl. We've experienced what that's like as fans. It's not a realistic goal for most teams, most seasons. And Now it's like, I don't think it's really a realistic goal for Seattle this season. It would be still, despite the fact that they're six and four, despite the fact that they're first place in the NFC West, despite the fact that they're the number three seed in the NFC, even after that loss, it doesn't feel super realistic to expect them to win the Super Bowl this year, but we're watching it take shape. And I think that's the biggest difference is it felt like it was going to take a series of miracle wins for Seattle to do that last few years. Whereas now we're actually seeing bedrock foundation pieces put in place for Seattle to build a real contender. I mean, you look at the top teams in the NFL, none of them seem unbeatable. None of them have been, um, you know, and, and it doesn't feel like the gap between Seattle and the best teams in the NFL is any more than one more really good offseason away. Yeah, I, I go along with that. I do think it feels um, like there's a real opportunity, especially because I think the real what's what's enabled them to kind of have this season, of course, is Geno Smith. That's that's played a big part in it. But I think also the fact they've had a fantastic draft class. They've, it was a deep draft class. You know, they had a lot of picks and a lot of those players are performing. And because they've got a whole bunch of picks in the next draft, you kind of feel like, well, that's a, another opportunity to add a whole bunch of talent and get even better. So that is um, a very, very much a positive. The only slight concern I have, I have thought about this a couple, uh, for the last couple of days, really, is I can remember kind of having this feeling in 2018. And I'm not sure it's quite as similar, but that was a year when they beat the Packers. That was a, a, a home. That was a year when they beat the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes uh, in Seattle. They, they had some really memorable wins. I think I'm right in saying it was a 10-6 season. They, they obviously flumped uh, against uh, uh, Dallas in the playoffs in that game. And that was a very disappointing loss that everybody really reacted badly to. But it did feel as if it was the start of something. And then when they got to the offseason, it felt like, well, they traded Frank Clark. They then spent the, you know, they had two first round picks. They spent them on LJ Collier and, and traded down for Marquise Blair. And all of that momentum that they were building up had gone. 
and I really hope that they don't that doesn't happen again. And it goes to show that even if you feel like you're on the right path, you've still got to to keep moving forward. You've got to add the right kind of players. So I hope that because I think it's right. I, I mean, I'm not expecting anything more than um, at, at this stage a decent, see a more enjoyable season than I was expecting. And if they get to the playoffs, fantastic. If they win a playoff game, a bonus, and I'll take it. Um, but ultimately, I still, yeah, yeah, I I, I still feel that way uh you know it was so nice the first month of the season to not have expectations right and and to just <laughs> hope is a dangerous thing and i have had it for the last 10 11 years you know like you could tell the story where things break right the seahawks are right in the mix to win a championship and this was the first year where i was like okay you know what i'm just going to treat this as a shopping list season you know, there are a lot of items that this team needs to get from the grocery store. And I want to see how many of those they can check off during the season. Wins be damned. Never rooting for losses. I don't believe in tanking. I don't think, I think that's something that works on spreadsheets a lot more than it does in real life. I think losing leaves scars, especially with young teams. I think you still want to see wins. I, I, I think that the number of games you win in a given season is probably a far better indicator of the track you're on than moving up a few spots in the, in, in the draft. Um, so I was hoping for wins. I was hoping for seven or eight wins, but that's kind of the ceiling uh, for my expectations. And now here I am bummed about a loss. I mean, I don't have any major takeaways that, Oh, this team got exposed. They can't beat a good team. I, I don't believe that at all. Um, but it's wild how much I'm thinking about, how a one and a half game lead in the division is now only a half game lead over a team that I think is superior to the Seahawks. And it's like, God damn it. I'm here hoping again. <laughs> you know, I was trying to give myself a year off from this feeling and I'm, I'm right back in it, but ultimately it's, it's what you want as a fan. Yeah. But like it, it, it halfway point with all that with the Seahawks, you look around the division, the 49ers have yet again dived all in with the McCaffrey move and, um, and you got the the Cardinals who there's an actual article on I think it's azcentral.com calling for Colt McCoy to be named the starting quarterback in Arizona. And then you've got the Rams who have the best player in the sport and are just not getting anywhere near the quarterback, don't have an airline, have now lost one of the best receivers in the league for the next month. But the way their season's going, it just feels like they may just uh, call it a season and shut him down. But like there's there's so much about this Seahawks season, this the path that this this team may be on or could be on or is on that is still up still up in the air, but also was just not even close to my expectations, even like two weeks into three weeks into the season. Because this team got handed this team made uh, Patterson, uh Coronel Patterson, not like Lamar Jackson, like six weeks ago. And now this this team is yeah, like there's not many teams above them in the list of NFC strongest kind of thing. And it's just, everything is just, it continues to be up in the air and it's just, it's fun. It's a fun spot to be in. Yeah. I think to pick up on Rob's point about 2018, the reason, and I I really think that's a good comparison to make, I guess the reason I'm more optimistic now is that for three or four years, it felt to me like, Oh my God, if we don't do it this year, 
the arse is going to fall out of it and we're going to have to reach and, you know, they will lose players and they will have to, you know, they have to draft well, otherwise they're going to be in disarray and, oh my God, what's going to happen with the offensive coordinator? And is, you know, whereas at least now I, I kind of feel that there's a, a bit of playing with house money at this stage because I don't feel any worries about next year. Certainly, I, I don't see them taking a step back next year like I feared they may have done in 18, 19, 20, where they kind of had to get it done. Um, assuming they stay on the same trajectory draft-wise, you would have to hope that they're only going to improve on this year. Um, so I'm kind of enjoying th- this season that it, that it does feel like we're, we're able to, you know, just swing for the fences and, and see what happens. And I, I don't know, I mean... We're not going to play against Cooper Cup in in either game. It, it wouldn't seem. We missed DeAndre Hopkins in one game. We missed basically the entire Saints offense, albeit they did beat us. We didn't play against uh, St. Brown for Detroit. We didn't really play Keenan Allen and Mike Williams for the Chargers. It gets to a stage with me where there's we're so not getting many... we're not getting Darren Waller next week either. No, not getting Darren Waller next week. Um, you know, the AFC West, we've taken two wins from that division where you would have thought there's no chance maybe of even winning one game already. And there's, there's part of me, Jackson, that, I don't know, if someone looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably going to be a duck. And there's part of me that thinks that so many things have fallen in the Seahawks' favour this year that to not capitalise on it, and I'm not saying they win a Super Bowl, but to not have a couple of moments like January playoff moments would, would would be a bit of a shame now. And, and I don't apologize I for, for shifting my goalposts because I'm a strong proponent in the fact that if if the situation allows you to move the goalposts, go ahead and do it. Well, totally. And I, I think it's important to remember that in the NFL, the trajectory of a franchise can change really, really quickly. It's it's not like baseball where you have to build out a farm system and and there's just a lot fewer dominoes, right? It's so hard to stay on top. You don't have to look any further than the Rams right now who, and, and here's what I will say. I respect the hell out of less need and that approach. And as a football, as a Seahawks fan, of course, you know, I wanted to, to see the Rams lose that Super Bowl, but as a football fan, I thought it was really cool to see a franchise decide to just go all in and say, fuck them picks. And we're just going to go out and sign the best available player to a massive contract for as long as we possibly can. And it was cool to see that pay off, but they're paying the bill on that now. And the 49ers have traded all of their immense draft capital over the past few years to basically end up with whatever Trey Lance is going to be and a running back that's been in the league for seven years already. And, and there's no question that Christian McCaffrey makes them a better team right now, but they're, they're at risk of being in the same situation as the Rams shortly. The the Cardinals are directionless. And so, you know, even if it doesn't happen this year, the fact that Seattle is trending up as steeply as they are right now with where the other teams in the division are headed, this could be their division for a while if they continue to do things the right way. And, and the biggest thing for me is there's just going to be a lot less to shop for this offseason than I thought they were going to have to. I mean, mm. they probably have, they do have their tackles set for the next two years at a minimum. They have their cornerback set for the next two years at a minimum. I mean, these are major cornerstone positions that are really, really hard to hit on. They hit on all four in one draft, you know, uh, <laughs> they might have their quarterback 
now, you know, and, and that's the biggest one too. And so, you know, there, there is an opportunity cost to extending Geno Smith uh, because it means that you're not taking a shot at this year's quarterback class, but there's an opportunity cost to not signing him either. And now you have to use some of that money, a lot of that money or uh, uh, one of those big time draft picks, or maybe you're even packaging two firsts to go up and get your guy. You don't have to do that anymore if you end up signing Geno Smith. So I think the biggest thing for me is I just feel like the house has been framed up already. And now it's like, how do you want to decorate it? And and that to me is just, it's a full season ahead of where I was hoping they would be. Yeah. I mean, it, in, in the off season, the Seahawks were the one NFC West team who made the biggest, uh, well, it seemed well, the biggest roster shift in like talent pool wise, but they're, they're also the team that have dropped the least amount of XG. If, if she's a sucker stat thing, um, because it's just, it is just, it's just, the, the fact they haven't completely fell off a cliff really at any point is just remarkable. And it, it does kind of feel, Rob, that, well, it's not all the way back. And a year ago, I wrote that I was finished with Pete and everyone, all the, all the rest of it. But it feels like the trust is kind of coming back around because of Cross, Lucas, Wallen, Walker, the decision they made to bring back and uh, bring back Gino. Like the des- decisions they've made in the last 12 months. It kind of does feel like trust is building back up with Pete in particular. Yeah, well, I think you have to give John Schneider a lot of credit as well because I, that, that draft um, is the is the sort of the bedrock, I think, of what's enabled them to turn a corner. And um, I, I just really hope that they go down that that way again. I thought they, you know, that is a great foundational draft. It was a foundational draft class. You know, I remember speaking to Scott McLuhan about it, and he just said. You know, this is a draft to 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 lay the foundations for any team, and and so it's proved for Seattle with their offensive tackles and a, and a good, uh, hopefully a, a good pass rush. You know, and Boya Mafe and and Ken Walker and your cornerbacks. And when I actually have a look at this this draft class, it's going to be quite different. You know, there's not the offensive linemen or offensive tackles, and Seattle don't need them. Um, you know, it is going to be slightly different, but I hope that they they take on the same plan in the off season of just basically they don't have to move around too much, you know, what's available when you're set to pick, just pick good players, you know, just try and add to the overall talent of it. Obviously, depending on what happens with Geno Smith and to a lesser extent, Drew Locke is going to dictate what they do at the top of round one because um, they're going to need a quarterback. But let's assume that they keep Geno Smith and maybe Drew Locke as well. Then, you know, keep adding talent. Just just make everything deeper and better. Uh, and, you know, I think if they could do that, then next year they could be a real force. I don't think that the NFC is going to repair itself in, in 12 months' time. I mean, which of the teams in the NFC right now are you looking at and thinking, well, you know, all right, it, you know, they've just got this great quarterback who just needs another year or something like that. I'm, I'm not sure that, that that exists. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the Eagles game yesterday. I just think they're such a, a mirage, you know, a, a team that, yeah, they've got some talent and they're a decent team, but I don't look at the Eagles and think, wow, you know, they're like a Kansas City Chiefs level team or Bills or somebody like that. So I think you, you're going to have a window over the next two or three years to really have a good go at this. Uh, and I think what the draft has shown is the key to everything is to draft well. And if the Seals can keep doing that and they're going to have a great opportunity to do it with all these picks, then they could be a real, real force next year. And, you know, yeah, the trust is, I mean, look, at likewise, I was like you, I, I wanted them to, to get rid of Pete Carroll and keep Russell Wilson and bring in a, you know, a, a Brian Daybold type coach. Um, it might not have been the worst thing in the world to do that, but, 
ultimately the path that they've gone and they had to do something. It has something had to change. They couldn't just carry on doing what they've been doing for the last few years. And what, what's happened is it's worked. It's made the Seahawks exciting again. It's exciting to watch them. You are invested in the games. They're interesting. They've got a bit of a spark back. Um, as a fan, I feel more invested than I have over the last few years because that sparks back. So yeah, you know, the trust is definitely back. And um, I hope that they just keep building and keep building. And hopefully either next year or the year after, they'll be in a position to to have a good go at this. Whether they could win a Super Bowl with, you know, the cast of characters and whether Geno Smith's got it within him to win a Super Bowl, well, we'll find out, won't we? But um, certainly watching this is a lot better than even watching, you know, like two years ago, they were 12 and four. And I thought that was a crap team to watch. The six and four... <laughs> And I'm and I'm and I'm more interested in this team than yeah. I am the one two years ago. Yeah, but also last year in April in the draft, it was a surprise that they picked it. They picked uh, nine. They picked Cross and the two in the early second. They didn't really make the big move up. But this that kind of feels like following your points, Rob. That that's the path they should go down with with the success of Gino, with the success of these draft picks. Um, in the early few rounds last year, that that's the path they should go down. You don't need to be aggressive in this draft again, neither do you? Well, I don't know. I mean, this, this is a big conversation, of, you know, without wanting to, to bore you all too much with my draft geekery. But, um, you know, the, I think this is the conversation that we're going to end up having is, you know, when you watch that game on, on Sunday, it'd be very easy to say the one thing they really lack is, a, you know, a, a game-wrecking defensive lineman. Now, if you want one of those, you, unless Denver somehow work their way into the top three, you ain't going to get one. So, you you know, at what point do you sort of say, OK, you know, they've got number seven at the minute. If you could get up to number two or three, is it worth doing it to get Jalen Carter or Will Anderson? I don't know. I mean, like I, personally, I think Will Anderson's had a very disappointing season and I think Jalen Carter for the last two weeks has looked unstoppable. So, you know, it's 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 hard to know what what's right or wrong in that regard. What I don't want them to do is just trade down, trade down. I think that's got them into all sorts of trouble over the last few years, you know, trying to be too clever with gathering picks. You know, I'd like to see them just sort of add talent. And and they did that last year. They didn't, didn't muck around too much. They were just they just picked players um, in, the, in the spots and, and added talent. And I'd like to see them do that again at the very least. But again... You know, if you can, if you're going to take a guy at seven, let's say, and you know that you can trade down three spots, and the same guy is going to be there at ten, why wouldn't you trade down and get the picks? I mean, it just makes sense. If you know the guy that you're taking is going to be there in two or three picks time, why wouldn't you? You know, it'd be like someone offering you a free ten pound note. You're going to take it, aren't you? There's no, there's no reason not to have it. Um, so I, you know, I won't completely rule out trading down, but I mean, I look at the class, and I, you know, I've, I mean, I wrote seven thousand words yesterday on the draft. You know, it's it, I, I, there's, there's all I could bore you to death with all the players that they could draft and they could do this and they could do that. Um, they're definitely going to be the options there. There always are in every driven in a bad draft class. There's always options to improve your team. So um, yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to that aspect of it. I, I don't want to wish my life away, but I am kind of. In, I'm interested with every Seahawks game. I'm always very fascinated to see what's going to happen this week, but I'm also really fascinated to see what happens in the next off season. Because so I think it's going to be a fascinating uh, story to unfold there. Uh, go on, go on, Jackson. Well, a couple of points, sir, Rob, that I really like is, you know, one, you, you want to see the, the thing that was so refreshing about this draft class and, and don't get me wrong. It, it has materialized far better and far quicker than I expected, even with my rosiest outlook. But even during the draft, it just felt like, yes, this, this is it. And granted drafting early drafting in the top 10 changes things. It's much different than picking 26th overall, but they just took 
really good players. Like there were no picks depending on how you feel about drafting running back in the second round. I'm, I love Ken Walker. I love the pick at the time, whatever that, that one out, you know, I, I understand, but they just took good players when they were there. And I got it. You know, that's what they did. 2010 through 2012 is they just took top end blue chip prospects when they were available. They didn't get cute. They didn't try and outsmart themselves. And I'm hoping that the success they had by doing that this year just reminds John Schneider, like that's how you built the first Super Bowl team. You just took in the first two days of the draft, you took really good players and then you take your shots on some of the developmental guys and you hope to hit on a Richard Sherman or a Tariq Woolen later in the draft and, and get some free contributions there. The other thing, Rob, and you can speak to this better than I can, but you know, you talked about maybe trading down from say seven to 10 or whatever. It's a little bit easier. It seems to me to map out what teams are going to do in the first 12 to 15 picks of a draft than it is after that, you know, after that it's, it's a little bit more dart throwings. I I think you're taking a little bit more of a risk in hoping that a guy is still going to be there eight or 10 picks later. Whereas in the first dozen or so picks of the draft, it's a little bit easier to look at the guys on the board, look at the teams drafting after you and say, okay, it's, it's, it's a little easier to map out the decisions that they're going to make. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, and, and listen, even as I was kind of thinking about that, you know, trading from seven to 10, you, even if you've got a really good, if you know the player's going to be there three picks later, I almost am inclined to say, as much as I just argued for that, why risk it? You know, you, you, mm-hmm. you've, just, you've just said a good point there. And like when I look at the, the class and there is going to be a point very quickly in, in this upcoming draft where the talent drops. And if you get the luxury of a top 10 pick gift wrap from the Denver Broncos, it, it might just be best just sitting there, taking a player, doing what you did last this year. And, and as you mentioned there, when you were building those drafts, I mean, they didn't trade down in the first round in 2010 or 2011. And they traded down, at, I think it was three spots to get Bruce Irvin, who they were going to take at 12 anyway, but they took him at 15. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. That That is the key to this for me. It's it's to just do that. And, and I think you can get a good defensive lineman at number seven. You can get a really good receiver. You, you'll be able to get the top receiver if you want him at number seven. Um, depending on what happens with quarterback, you could get one of them. I feel like for Seattle... A lot of it depends on which teams are picking ahead of them because, mm. and, and, you know, Rob, you can educate us a little bit more on how legit you think this quarterback class is actually going to be, but coming into this collegiate season it was a highly regarded class with talks of five or six first round quarterback. If there's a bunch, even as say Seattle is picking somewhere in the seven to 10 range, if three or four of those picks ahead of them, need a quarterback or decide to go a quarterback route. I mean, could it push down a top three overall talent to six, seven, eight? I think the problem is, is that the, uh, the, the three players that I would say are like your legit, legit blue chip, definite, you know, top three talents, are Jalen Carter, Will Anderson and Bijan Robinson. I think Carter and Anderson will go in the top four for sure. And Robinson's a bit of a redundant pick because every time that Robinson's on the field, Ken Walker's not and vice versa. So, and, and look, the Seahawks Twitter will not be able to handle them taking Bijan Robinson <laughs> in the top 10. So for the sanity of everybody, I hope they don't go in that in that way. But Bijan Robinson will probably have the highest grade on most boards because he's, he's that good a player. Yeah, um, he is. 
Now, is it, you know, where you say, is it a legit, I think it is a legit quarterback class. I think you've got four, you know, first round picks, top 10 picks, and there are four guys who will go in the top 10. I think you've got some depth so that if, if you don't take one early, there are players you can take a little bit later on as developmental projects. I think there's, there's definitely some options there. It's a really thick quarterback class. So I think it is legitimate. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, Will Levis and Anthony Richardson and CJ Stroud and Bryce Young are going to be any good. But I think that when you know, compared to what we've seen in recent years, they are players that you, you can justify to an owner taking a shot on those guys to be your franchise quarterback. So they are going to go early. I think those four, and I think it will mean that there are opportunities. Like I say, you know, Quinton Johnston, the receiver at TCU, is an incredible player who will test exceptionally well. I think he will end up going in the top 10. He's an option for you. You've got, you've got the two defensive linemen I mentioned already. You've got Tyree Wilson at Texas Tech, who's going to go very early. I wish he was more consistent, but there's a lot of talent there. You've got your, your Marzi Smiths at Michigan. Not sure if they'll have the arm length for Seattle, but you know he's going to blow up the combine. There are players like you could talk yourself into a Brian Brassie. I think Miles Murphy's a bit of a pussycat at Clemson, but we'll see. Um, and there's others. You know, there's There's going to be a great option there. And there'll be great options later on. I love the options in day two. So, you know, without wanting to go too deep into the weeds on the draft, I think that um, there's definitely a, you know, the future is bright for Seattle, you know, because of the picks they've got, because the season they've had this year. And you were mentioning about tanking, Jackson. I think that if you can avoid tanking, can get another team to give you a top 10 pick... (laughs) And can kind of set your culture moving forward by actually having a winning team who are sort of buying into this and are really growing together. It's the perfect storm. And it's always Denver who helps out. It was Denver who gave them the old Thomas pick. Mm-hmm. It's Denver again. We should probably send some flowers to the Denver Broncos and say thank you very much. Maybe maybe a, a bouquet of flowers isn't enough. Maybe we should be <laughs> yeah. giving them a weekend in Vegas. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. it, well, it, it sounds like they're getting Brian Schottenheimer soon. So that's a, that's a different kind of... Really? Yeah, that's that's apparently what has the 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 next uh, guy on the head coach's office chair. God bless. He's him. gonna be he's gonna be the head coach. That's God that's God. the that's the uh, who said that? Uh, Benjamin Albright, one of Adam's friends. On, oh, uh, he is on, uh, super Twitter, dialed to Denver apparently too. Apparently, sent it. That's what Russell Wilson is. Uh, he is probably the most allegedly guy campaigning over there. for. Oh gosh, man! This is what happens when you give. Here's, here's here's the thing, you know, Rob mentioned it. I felt the same way. Credit where it's due to you guys, especially you, Adam. Uh, I always, when I think back about like, okay, I was, I was, I don't necessarily know that my process was bad, but I was wrong about how Seattle should pivot after last year. I wanted to toss Pete Carroll and John Schneider out with the bathwater and build don't around give me too much credit because I agreed with you 100% on that. Don't give me any credit for that. <clears throat> well, you did for a bit, but you you pivoted before I did in terms of just being over Russell Wilson and oh yeah, just kind of the shenanigans out outside of what he was doing on the on the field. And honestly, him hurting his finger might have been a big time blessing because I think it gave the team permission to start looking at life after Russell Wilson. And if you are going to make the decision to move on from probably the most important player in franchise history and make certainly the biggest trade in the, the biggest front office decision in Seattle sports since the Ken Griffey jr. Trade Pete Carroll is the right guy to rebuild that, you know, and I was thinking he's the right guy to get the team far enough in the next couple of years, get them believe in, do the culture building stuff to hand it off to a more forward thinking uh, head coach to put them over the top. But Pete Pete's earning it 
right now. He's, he's reminding me of why fortune 500 companies pay him so much money to come in and talk to them about how to build a culture and how to lead. And, and, you know, I mean, he's, he's elite at that. I think he is a top two or three person in the NFL when it comes to building a program and, and getting buy-in and, and we're seeing it. Can I um, just get a sort of a heat check from the group? You know, it is a state of the union, as I like to call it, this podcast. And Geno Smith gets talked about so much. And yet every time I think about the situation with him, I almost feel like we don't talk about it enough. I mean, every time I think about his situation, I'm layering and layering and layering a new thing on that. And there's, well, why in 10 years have 320 teams basically had the chance to make him this starting quarterback? Why has this never happened? And is it a situational thing? Um, Is he just, has he been a victim of some stereotyping for want of a better, you know, better or worse term? Where are we with Gino now as a group? Because we're in a situation where, and Rob, you've talked about this a lot, that, you believe that the Seahawks have set their cap situation for next year on the proviso of not paying a quarterback. And if you look at the available money versus the players they have on the roster, which is like 33 or 34, that looks like a really salient point. And it kind of feels like you've got one of those seesaws and you've got the triangle that you need to position exactly right to keep the seesaw you know, up, up on both sides. Where, where do we think Geno Smith is right now and this is a very difficult question but we're trying to win a Super Bowl I think we're very explicit in the sense that that is the overall goal here and where do we think we are with this that if Geno Smith says yeah I'll sign for you but it's going to cost you 35 million dollars you know a year are are we happy to do that versus do we want to take a punt on say we're not going to do that we're going to draft someone but there's probably been five quarterbacks drafted in the last five years that you'd be happy to be a franchise quarterback. So it's a hard question to ask, but if you were doing your sliding scale of where, where you are with Gino, I mean, is this a guy that is sign at all costs, Jackson, and, and you worry about the, the rest of it afterwards? Or is there some trepidation? Because he he's not regressed to the mean by a long shot, but I would say that the performance in the last couple of weeks have maybe not been quite as impressive as they have been in the past. Yeah, you know, I, I framed this, this question, and I've mentioned this on my own show, I think about it in terms of if I woke up tomorrow and found out that the Seahawks had signed Geno Smith to a four-year, $140 million extension, how would I feel? And for the first seven or eight weeks of the season, I I would have been pretty nervous about that. I mean, I, it would have been like, okay, let's go. He, he better be the guy. Uh, now, I, I would be happy if I heard that. You know, um, do I think that he is absolutely the best possible option? I'm not ready to say that at all. I mean, we've seen great seasons from career backups who get an opportunity. Uh, you know, Case Keenum went, I think, 14 and two with the Vikings and got him to an NFC championship game. Um, we've seen it from Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, you know, um, Nick Foles, of course, with that Super Bowl run. And then you just don't really hear from these guys again, certainly not in terms of being top tier quarterbacks. That is very much on the table with Geno Smith. But what, what you can do now that you couldn't do before is imagine this team winning meaningful playoff games with Geno Smith as the quarterback. There's nothing about his performance that tells me he's just going to turn into a pumpkin when the chips are down. We've seen, you know, I, I think for me, what will be the turning point when I look back, assuming that assuming Geno Smith continues to play well the rest of the season, assuming the team 
makes a commitment to them, which we just had John Boyle on my show, literally right before I hopped on with you guys. And he's the senior reporter for the Seahawks. And, and he's saying, man, like this, this conversations are happening. Pete Carroll said as much, uh, yesterday, you know, like they are looking forward to that conversation. So I'm, I'm that, was, that was a great question, by the way, to, uh, yeah. to Pete. Was, whoever asked that well yes. done. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's definitely their style to let the season play out and then make that decision. I generally agree with that. But for me, I, I guess the, the final piece that I'm missing is one that Rob can answer. Um, I'm really, really curious, Rob, how many quarterbacks in this draft you would be happier to have be Seattle's signal caller moving forward than Geno Smith on a four-year contract? Because you, you're going to yeah. factor in the fact that it's a rookie contract as well. I mean, look, I think it's a fascinating conversation across the board because um, I, I think T, I, I personally don't think you're going to have to pay him $35 million a year. I, I think some of the th- the reasons why he has been available all those years, when other quarterbacks who are, who are no more um, qualified to get that second chance are constantly getting those second chances, like Andy Dalton's one, who always seems to land somewhere where he either gets a handful of starts or is announced as a starter and gets chance after chance after chance. And, you know, those kind of players will be present in the, in the free agency period. So I'm, I've got a little list here. So Daniel Jones is a free agent. He's, he's seven or eight years younger than Geno Smith. Is somebody going to think, well, if Geno Smith can make it happen, why can't Daniel Jones do that? Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be a free agent. Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield are going to be free agents. You've got people like that who are going to be uh, a bit. Tyler Heineke's a free agent. Lamar Jackson currently is going to be a free agent, although I don't think he's going to go anywhere. People are going to, the market is going to be full of players that, you know, I think teams will weigh up. Do we want to pay Geno Smith $35 million a year, or do we want to go and try and find our version of Geno Smith at a fraction of the price? That's going to be a talking point. I, don't th- I think the Seahawks are doing exactly the right thing by just sort of waiting until the end of the season and letting the market set set things for them, and then they can make a decision. I, it, it's really hard to sort of say there's any draftable quarterback right now that I'd want ahead of Geno Smith because Geno Smith's playing so well. Um, and, and whoever you mention in this kind of conversation is just a projection. Now, Anthony Richardson could be the MVP of the NFL. He could be Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson in one. You know, he's got that, that physical potential, but whether he ever reaches his full potential is a huge question mark. Uh, I, I love Will Levis. CJ Stroud's got an amazing arm. Bryce Young has just got a natural ability to him. There's, you know, you could make an argument for any of those four players at a, at a 6 million cap hit versus the potential 30 million cap hit that Geno Smith's going to get next year. But it's really hard, isn't it, to say, no, no, we're going to move on from this player who's played well for 10 games and is what second well, in- quarterback rating than, than to sort of appeal to one, to one of these guys. But, I do think there comes a point when you have to go, that's too much money. I don't yes. think the Seahawks can commit $35 million to Geno Smith, but then I'm looking at the market and I've got the cap hits here. You know, it's incredible. I don't think people realize how much some of these guys are paid. So Derek that's, Carr, that's just it. That's just it. Derek Carr, 40 and a half million. Dak Prescott, 40. Matt Stafford, 40. Kirk Cousins, 35. Jared Goff, 33 and a half average salary. Carson Wentz, 32. Matt Ryan's on 30 million a year. Ryan Tannehill's on 29 and a half, and then it drops all the way to Tom Brady, who's got a $15 million contract. Ah, oh, fucker. How, how does Geno Smith, how does Geno Smith 
fit into that because I'm sure here's, he would argue I'm better than a lot of those he guys. Is, but he is. here's the thing: I don't think I he's went, going to get that money. I I went through and this is you know sneak peek, something I'm going to talk about on on my next episode. But I this is the perfect group to to bandy about this with. I went through the NFL standings earlier today and looked at who the starting quarterbacks were for each team. And I counted how many right now, without hesitation, I would rather have than Geno Smith. And my number was seven, seven. And then there's two or three guys that I think I'm, I'm debating with, you know, kind of in that Dak Prescott, Trevor Lawrence type of range where like, okay, yeah, you know, I, I'd maybe rather have that guy, but there's only seven that I'm like, yes, right now I would trade Geno Smith for that guy straight up because I think that if, if none of those guys are available, of course. And so, you know, the question becomes as a franchise, you know, there is the human element to this. There's so much that goes into being a winning football team that we just can't capture statistically. And, and that's not to say that, you know, metrics aren't without value. I think they have tremendous value, but ultimately you have to go before this team of 53 guys who have watched Geno Smith lead this team and say, you know what? He wasn't worth it. We're, we're going to bring in this kid instead. You know, that's, there's a messaging that goes along with this Geno Smith decision that I think is a huge variable in what direction you decide to go. Can, can I also make a quick point? I think that um, we get so consumed with what we perceive to be the right way of doing things. There's like a lot of conventional thinking in the NFL. And one of those things is that the, ultimately the way to win a Super Bowl is to find a great quarterback in the draft and land your Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen type. But look, it's easy to forget that Nick Foles has won a Super Bowl. It's easy to forget that Jimmy Garoppolo has been to a Super Bowl, that Matt Stafford has been to one, that uh, Joe Flacco had a great playoff run and won a Super Bowl, won a Super Bowl MVP. You know, the, the, there are examples where quarterbacks that are unspectacular have ultimately either won a Super Bowl or taken their team to a Super Bowl. I think ideally, if you want to have a dynasty-style franchise, which is so hard to create, you are going to need to find a Patrick Mahomes-level legendary player. But let's accept that that's very difficult to find, almost impossible. That's, Therefore, that's having, not a good plan of action. No. Having to count actually, on that, it's not actually necessary, perhaps, to have what what everybody feels is this unbelievable twenty five year old quarterback. It's like not having fund. a retirement fund because you're buying lottery tickets. Yeah, like one <laughs> one of these one of these will hit, and I won't have to worry about it. The, the great thing about the NFL is it constantly reminds you that there's there's multiple ways to win. There's multiple ways to build a team. You can be offensive minded, defensive minded. You can be balanced. You can have you can win with great running game and defense. You can win with amazing passing game, and you could win going for it on fourth down every single time. You could win punting it on in the forty yard line of the opponent's half, like Pete Carroll does. There's all sorts of ways to play this game. Everyone has their own ideals and ways and means, and there is no one size fits all. And if the Seahawks, I don't, I, there's no reason why the Seahawks can't keep Geno Smith, keep you know everybody connected as they clearly are right now and keep building this team and have a real powerhouse team without that spectacular, uh, you know, trendy quarterback, perhaps. Um, although I think Gino is becoming quite trendy. And, and listen, I, I'm, I'm not overly against because of Gino Smith. This made me reconsider things. Who's to say that they can't keep Gino Smith and Drew Locke? And, and maybe one day Drew Locke could be the next Gino Smith and just sort of carry this along and him be almost like the player you've drafted. I don't think that's a, 
such a stupid thing to think these days now that we've seen what Geno Smith's been capable of just by learning and biding his time. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. That list of names of quarterbacks and $45 million for like six different names is why we've got G- one reason why we've got Geno Smith at quarterback because they weren't going to pay Russell. They weren't comfortable paying for whatever reason paying Russell Wilson. The top name on the free agent list is probably going to dictate the quarterback market because he's in a similar position where the Giants are in a similar position with Daniel Jones as we are with Geno in a obviously more premium position we were last year with Rashad Penny and Rashad Penny didn't get paid that premium pay that maybe we thought ended last season, but also. With Pete Carroll, obviously, the connection of that locker room, as you say, Rob, but also it's all about the ball. And if they trust someone who isn't going to turn the ball over or isn't going to run, uh, overthrow Jerry Judy's popping ankle uh, for like like 20 yards on a Sunday and keep the ball and keep the offense going and they build around him, then Gino is going to be getting that trust and going to be getting that contract. But I don't think... I just I don't see Geno Smith getting 30, 35 million a year. Yeah. I think he's going to be 18, 20, maybe. It might, get a bit, it might get a bit more than that, but it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, you know, people are throwing around numbers now that I just don't think the league are going to no, go to. No, no, and, no. And, the, and you know what? The other thing, the equation to this is it is because it is such a good quarterback draft. You know, there are going to be teams there who, yeah, we could pay Geno Smith 35 yeah. million or we could just draft him. And they are going to draft that, that player. And I think you know, the market is going to come to Seattle in this one. And I think they will get Geno Smith perhaps a bit cheaper than they think. It might take a while. They might not sign him until April, but I think mm-hmm. he, he, he eventually they will come together and they'll get this done. And I think the Seahawks are very comfortable with it and, and they're right to be. They're right to be. And I thought that was what Pete Carroll expressed when I asked him about it on Sunday was that, I, that there's no rush. They're, they're, willing, they're willing to sort of see this one out, I think. There's two things that I think are helping Seattle out in this situation. Um, one of them is that the cap is just project projected to go way up. <laughs> and that's true. That's true for every team, but it's projected to go up by $30 million or close to it. That's Geno Smith right there, you know? And, and I think that helps. The other thing is when I was going through that list and looking at teams that who, who had quarterbacks that I would rather have than Geno Smith, I also look at how many teams are legitimately going to be in the market for a quarterback this year. And I got the same number. It's seven, you know, and if there are four or five first round quality quarterbacks, that doesn't leave a whole lot of teams that are in position to pay a bunch of money for a Geno Smith. You know, that I, I, I I think New York is going to win. You mentioned Daniel Jones. I think that's a perfect comparison for the situation, obviously much earlier in his career, but same kind of thing, late, late bloomer. They're going to win too many. They're seven and two. Like, I, I think we all expected, I certainly expected the Giants to be picking in the top 10 and taking quarterback because they declined Daniel Jones' fifth year option. Mm. He's He's been basically ass for four years, <laughs> but you, you're winning too many games in New York. They're going to be a playoff team. And I, I don't see them moving on from them. And, and the other teams that are looking for a quarterback are in full rebuilds. They're not going to, pay big money for a 33 year old guy to lead the turnaround. They're not going to commit long-term. So I don't honestly know that there's going to be a huge market for Geno Smith. Yeah. Also, but in New York, just go and check who Daniel Jones has to throw the ball to. It's, it's Brian Dayball, but Brian, De, Brian Dayball, Dayball, however you say his name has to walk the coach of the year this year. He is coaching 
his gonads off up in up in New Jersey. It's unbelievable. They're seven and two. Well, and look look at a team like uh, uh, Philadelphia, where they have a raw quarterback who has lots of talent and not a lot of polish. So what did they do? They went out and they drafted Devontae Smith, who is a phenomenal collegiate receiver. I mean, he his final year at Alabama is probably the least guardable receiver I've ever seen in college since Randy Moss. And I was too young to appreciate how how good he was. He won the high. I mean, he had 200 yards in the national championship game at halftime on like 13 catches. He is completely unguardable. So they draft him and then they trade for AJ Brown. And all of a sudden Jalen Smith or Jalen hurts is performing like an absolute elite franchise quarterback. Same thing in Miami, right? You've got Tua who was just raw. It wasn't clicking. He had a coach that wanted him out of the building and they bring in a coach that is going to build around him. They draft Jalen Waddle and they trade for Tyreek Hill. Tua has had the best season of any quarterback in the NFL this year. He's, he's first in just about every metric. They're seven and zero when he's finished a game. And it's just like, you know, if, if New York makes that, that decision to say, okay, Daniel Jones is our guy. Is he a top 10 quarterback by talent? No, no, he's not can we get top 10 production out of him by putting two alpha receivers around him? Absolutely. And the giants are going to have the ability to do that. I just, I just don't think there's going to be very many teams, if any that want or need Gino more than Seattle does. And Gino has, I mean, Gino knows and his agent knows that this is a perfect situation for him. Where does, where does Shane Waldron come into the conversation? Obviously it's his Pete Carroll's team. It's Pete Carroll's, offense but there just seemed to be there's just a diff, maybe it is Geno Smith it just seems to be a different vibe of things when the Seahawks offense has the ball there seems to be more like the the, the tight end play a couple of weeks ago against Arizona we've never seen that where they've just they've found a weak point and just gone at them again and again and again and again where does Waldron because it feels like he should be in head coaching circles at the end of the season with his McVay past or the offense obviously is got his issues this year and just how what he's doing with Geno Smith, a rookie running back, two rookie tackles, you know, and him and Andy Dickinson are doing with that unit. But look, where does Waldron's uh, 2023, where he is in 2023, where does that come into that like, equation for, for, for the Geno decision or and how this offense looks? Whoever wants it. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, they say that, you know, in an ideal world, if you always have an offensive minded head coach, you don't need to have to worry about your offensive coordinator getting an offensive, uh, you know, getting a head coaching job and leaving you in the mire. I, I don't, it's very difficult to quantify whenever that it comes to Seattle, what's coordinator led versus what's head coach led versus what's different to not having the Russell Wilson offense basically dictating the way in which you play. But I think I said last week that on that second day of free agency, we all checked our phones and we like, Will Disley for 24 <laughs> million. Are you on crack? I mean, right. what is going on? But we're now watching this team. Is that, oh, that this is how you use tight ends. And it wasn't that we, again, I'm not going to make this a uh, Denver, Denver Broncos quarterback negging conversation, but in his style of offense, perhaps that's not the way in which they could generate yards uh, through the tight ends. Now it's a case of, wow, these three tight ends combined are like the third and fourth receiver on, on a great team. So, um, 
you know, last year, the big conversation was run it back, wasn't it? Uh, and it was generally seen as Pete, John and Russ. Whereas right now, I think my hunch is that I'd be upset if it wasn't Pete, John, Gino and Shane starting next year. And hey, isn't it great? Can you imagine saying that a year well, ago? That's the thing, right? Whatever <laughs> happens ago. next year, whatever happens for the rest You've of the You've got to keep Pete, John, Gino and Shane together. You have to. <laughs> It's midnight right now for three of us. I don't want to go to bed. I'm having a great time talking about the six and four Seahawks led by Geno Smith and Shane Waldron. These were memes 12 months ago of people. (laughs) It's just great to get to discuss it like this. And, you know, sports, you know, gets to take you to a place where you don't normally get to go in your life with the, with the emotions and whatever. And how fantastic we'll get to enjoy our team again. That's my biggest takeaway. Absolutely. Yeah, can I just say on Shane Waldron? Um, I think that it, it's a big thing that he's got a quarterback who can can kind of do this this system and this scheme. And you know, I think we've seen what it looks like in LA for a long time. And, and Sean McVay was able to get Jared Goff, obviously, to to perform at a, at a high level and get to a Super Bowl. And and you know, Matt Stafford's taken it on to win them a Super Bowl. And and I think it works. I think it needs this type of a quarterback, someone who can execute, someone who can can do the job. And, and Geno Smith hasn't been hesitant. He has made some very good throws, but he can also function within this offense. And Adam will be bored to tears listening to me say this because I say it on our post game thing nearly every every time this kind of conversation comes up. But um, you know, I, I've heard from people who are who, who've heard from good sources in the past that you know the Shanahan guys would have never had any interest in a Russell Wilson type quarterback because he is a scrambler. He's a creator. He's a get out the pocket and make things happen. Whereas, you know, the Shanahan system is reliant on like, I need you to read the defense this way. And then depending on whether they do this or this, you throw it here. And that's, and that's why they've always kind of, you know, wanted that Kirk Cousins, Jimmy Garoppolo type quarterback who can just execute what they want them to do. They will just go out there and do as they're told essentially which increasingly it looks like Russell Wilson's just incapable of doing, and Geno Smith is very capable of doing. So, yes, they're a great match for each other. I've seen Peter Schrager tweeting in the last hour or something about Shane Waldron being a hot candidate for offensive, uh, sorry, head coaching jobs. I mean, the, the one thing I will say, this is, you know, I mean this in the nicest possible way. I don't think I've ever listened to a Shane Waldron interview and thought, what a charismatic leader. <laughs> and, and I just wonder whether or not when he gets into those meetings, with teams, whether he's going to be able to convince them that, yes, I am the man, you need to pay several million dollars to a year to, to be the, the head of your franchise. I'm not sure that he'll be able to do that in the same way that some other, you know, quality offensive coordinators have not been able to convince teams to do it. And also he's, he's going to be in a difficult pool when the likes of Sean Payton are out there. And, you know, the, there will be other hot offensive coordinators doing the rounds as well. Jeff Saturday's obviously, you know, and, and all the other players <laughs> like Jeff Saturday who just fancy a bashing it um, are going to are going to be in the running now. So, uh, so, so there. So, um, and it's it, it's going to be a competitive market. So I'm not I'm not too concerned about him leaving. Here's here's my my thought on Shane Waldron is and and it piggybacks on what Rob said is, you know, when you're hiring a head coach, you are hiring a CEO. It's not just someone that is going to do the X's and O's right and, and make the right decisions in game. That's a huge part of it. No question. That's the part that we can quantify. What we can't quantify is the ability to be the face of a $5 billion company and to be a leader of 53 alpha 
dudes who are used to being the baddest guy in every single room and, and commanding that respect and getting the most out of those guys is a really special talent. That's hard to project. And, you know, I've said this before, I've, I've said this on your show, I believe even that just because someone's a great accountant doesn't mean they're going to be a great CEO. Just because someone has set a bunch of sales records for your company doesn't mean they're going to be a great CEO is a totally different toolbox. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't even know that I've heard a Shane Waldron interview. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, I, it, it just seems like it's a perfect situation for him in Seattle. And I don't begrudge anybody with the opportunity to try their hand at running a team for, for taking that opportunity. It just, I'm with Rob. I, I it, it doesn't seem like things are aligning for Shane Waldron to leave anytime soon. And he can, he can build a tremendous career. I mean, he, he got the, the McVeigh boost for sure. He definitely, I mean, the way the Ram season has gone now and the way the Seahawks season has gone offensively uh, certainly seems to lend a lot of credence to Shane Waldron, much in the way that, Miami's offense uh, versus San Francisco's offense this year seems to lend a lot of credibility to Mike McDaniel. Um, but Mike McDaniel, that guy was the star. I mean, y- you could see it every opportunity he got in front of a microphone. You're like this, this guy is destined to be a successful head coach. At least that was my read. And, and he's well on his way to doing that. I don't get that vibe from Shane Waldron. No, by two degrees of separation, Adam, he's like a friend of the pod, I think, Mike McDaniel. Indeed, since uh, Dan Sarah came on and uh, extols his virtues. But, so we've done, Gino, to, to move it uh, one or two runs up the ladder. Um, and I think it's nice to finish on, from a Seahawks standpoint, on, on Pete Carroll. Um, and some of the stuff you said, Jackson, really resonated there because um, I've always said that where we sit as fans from a different country, I think we have a slightly detached view of what it's like to support the team. Invariably, we watch the games and Rob will write 7,000 words, but most of us will go to sleep. Um, that, that's kind of how it goes over here. And we, we don't necessarily find ourselves immersed in the culture and the society and the, the fraternity of what being a sports fan is like, like we do with our soccer teams over here, where it's an intoxicating lifestyle. And, and I feel probably my, my biggest whiff was being far too sort of spreadsheety about Pete Carroll and thinking, well, I just don't think this guy's got it anymore. Was not coaching to win. He needs to go. Um, But one thing I'm struck with on such a regular basis, when when we've been fortunate enough to talk to Seahawks players or when you see the locker rooms after wins, they absolutely adore him. They do. To a man man that's in there, look, some leave um, because he gets rid of them when, when, when the shtick, you know, runs out and I get it if you're if you're 33 yeah. and you've seen it for seven eight years it runs out fine they would run through a brick wall for that guy and they absolutely adore him and he's been given the opportunity to curate a team of guys that will basically you know do whatever it takes to win for him and, and they're overperforming as a result he's 72 years old so you know the sand in the in the timer is is dwindling on his career but w- where do we stand on Pete now because I've had a, almost like a, a complete 180 in the sense that I, I'm enjoying the bullshit again, which I hated <laughs> for two or three years when I didn't feel we were on, on that road to, to winning a championship. I, I'm loving it again. I think 72-year-old Pete Carroll will help Geno Smith being in Seattle in 2023 because I still think the rookie quarterback, I know he's probably got five or six years left. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned about the trust being built back up. I think none more so with Pete. 
because he clearly has shown that he can still. I think you've made the point Adam a few times in this pod this year that like the league has come back around to how he, he wants, wants to, to win, play. how he wants to play, how he how he thinks he can win. It's starting to come back around, and like that is just a conglomerate where the yeah, the trust is pretty much all the way back off. And I kind of wish I could delete the medium post that I wrote about a year ago, but never mind. Uh, yeah. No, but I don't, but I, I see a lot of that. Like, oh, you know, you should eat crow for doubting Pete Carroll. I don't think that's the case because I don't think for three or four years he was putting the team in a position to win. He is now, and we're sports fans. We pay for this in the main. We're allowed yeah. to be fickle or we're allowed to change our mind. And I don't think it's unfair to say that it's very different now to how it's been for the last three or four years, Jackson. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree. I also think, so I... A couple of weeks ago, I had to walk back a lot of my criticisms of Pete Carroll. And I, I do think some of it is a credit to Carroll adapting and evolving uh, in a way that I didn't think he was willing or capable to do. I also think that, you know, seeing the other side of Russell Wilson, right? It was, it was the same to a lesser degree with Richard Sherman. We loved all of Richard Sherman's bullshit when he was in Seattle. And then it was so easy to see why so many fans <laughs> of other teams hated him as soon as he's a 49er. I mean, he was scorched earth on the way out of town and we're seeing that with Russell Wilson now too. You know, I mean, we, we all kind of joked about how cheesy he was and all of this stuff over the last three, four years in Seattle, but he was still playing excellently. And, and it was like, you know, you're in a relationship with someone and they're doing a bunch of annoying stuff and it's cute and it's fun. And then you break up and you're still seeing that annoying stuff on social media. And you're just like, Oh my God, I see what all my friends were saying. Right. And, and that's where it's at. And so a lot of the things that I see, you know, that, that we chalk up to Pete Carroll's evolution, I think it's just freedom from not having Russell Wilson there. I think a lot of what Adam was talking about with older players who are on their third contract with Seattle or second contract with Seattle, getting tired of Pete Carroll. I I think that's some of it, but I think a lot of it was getting tired of Pete Carroll's relationship with Russell Wilson and this perceived difference in how Wilson was being treated compared to some of the other veterans on the team. And and I I just don't think Russell Wilson was well-liked. I mean, this is, this is no longer a hot take to say with a lot of the best players on the team when during the LOB era. And I think there's just so much more freedom now that Russell Wilson has moved on. It's back to being Pete Carroll's team. There isn't a whose team is this narrative going on anymore. And so uh, I'm, I'm fully on board with Pete Carroll seeing this through now. I don't want a change in leadership anymore. And, and that's a stunning thing for me to say. Yeah. Can I also say as well that a lot of the people saying, People need to row things back or, or, or apologize. No, you're allowed to change your mind. You know, th- these are the same people who insisted, for the most part, that Russell Wilson would never, ever be traded, and it was all a load <laughs> of bollocks. So, you know, everybody has opinions. Everybody has takes. I don't think I, – I, I've done a whole video saying I was how, admitting how completely wrong I was about Geno Smith, as, you know, a lot yep. of people were. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really feel the need to do a Pete Carroll version because when they were getting – their arse is kicked on defense by the Atlanta Falcons and the New Orleans Saints. And we all see what the Saints are like now, you know, giving up those, those ridiculous touchdowns to Taysom Hill. I didn't feel 
that we were seeing anything out of Carroll. I thought it was a legit question to wonder what's going on here. You know, he's a defensive coach. Look at the state of the defence. Yeah, Geno Smith's playing well. Congrats to him. Well done, Shane Waldron. But what's happening on the defensive side of the ball? It's a shambles. Now it's it's sorted itself out. You think, oh, great. You know, that's fantastic. I'm really glad about that. I'm no longer going to make the points I was making about Pete Carroll when the evidence was showing that his position warranted some kind of criticism there. That's not the case anymore. So we all move on. I think the most important thing is when you have opinions is to not have your blinkers on, not to have your your, your blue and green uh, tinted specs on. It's just to say what you actually think and call it how you think it is. You will get things wrong. You will get things right. No one's going to get everything 100% right. If you do a podcast or you write articles or you tweet a lot, you will get things wrong. Um, I don't think there's, 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 there does seem at times to be this horrible, um, you know, showing of receipts feeling in in Seahawks Twitter sphere that, you know, everyone's got to constantly be apologising for a take um, or telling everybody how they got something right. Let's just embrace that we're all going to get shit right and we're going to get stuff wrong as well. And let's just enjoy this season because it's, it's it's miles better than we all thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, also, it's also better than having the worst offence whilst having the best defence in the league by metrics as well, which <laughs> certain teams in the AFC West are living through. It's just crazy, though. Isn't that just crazy? It's, it's insane. I mean, can you just believe it? I mean, like, even it, it, it wasn't ridiculous to think Russell Wilson might actually not be good anymore because he's had an injury last year and he, he didn't look particularly good. That wasn't the craziest thing. But the fact that it is so bad, I mean, it, it's not just a bit bad. It's mm. it's it's awful. To the point they haven't they could, even started paying him his new contract yet. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and that's the thing. I mean, imagine being a Denver fan now. You've not got the draft to look forward to. You, I mean, like we all, I mean, I, no, I, I, was, I said we all, mainly me, um, complained a lot about the Jamal Adams trade. This makes that trade look like a, a, an absolute steal. <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. The commitment that they've got to Wilson, they can't get out of that deal. I mean, they could get out of it and then, you know, have no roster for the next five years. They are stuck to this guy. And the defense are going to be looking at him going, hang on a minute, we're, we're doing all this and we're keeping teams to... Isn't it something like if they'd have scored 18 points in every game, they'd have, they'd have been eight and one or something yes. like that? Yes, that's, that's exactly crazy. right. Yeah. 18 he, points is nothing. But the but also the fact that they were a selling team at the trade deadline seven weeks I after know. paying uh, their quarterback that much money... Um, yeah, it's, and, it's, and you know the, the, the strange thing is, is because you know they they looked like they got everything everything right. You know, oh, mm-hmm. young offensive minded head coach, new owners, very successful people taking over, quarterback, ready made defense, running game, weapons. They got everything, and then I mean, they, if a couple of other results had gone the other way at the weekend, Seattle would have had a top five pick right now. I mean, it's just, <laughs> It's astonishing. And look, the Seahawks are in the 22nd pick right now and Denver are in the seventh pick. And we all thought it was going to be the other way around. Yeah. Exactly the other way around. And, and to Rob's point, you know, I, I really appreciated what you just said there because we need to normalize being okay with being wrong. On <laughs> like, we, that should be an acceptable, if not admirable thing is to say like, yeah, I, I, I was wrong on that. Like, for example, just as a football fan, forget, forget, the whole Seahawks thing. I couldn't have been, and I know I'm not alone on this, whatever. I could not have been more wrong about Josh Allen. I thought Josh Allen, you were just tying yourself to a developmental anchor 
that was going to, you know, keep Buffalo as a mediocre team until they got a chance to get to the next quarterback. And he's been exceptional. It would be so lame as a football fan to still be like, ah, no, I, I don't think Josh Allen's going to be good or, or looking for ways to poke holes in his performance to try and justify some offhand uneducated take I had when he was coming out of Wyoming, you know, like these are the best athletes on the planet. They, we don't really know how they're going to perform at the next level. We can only project situation has so much to do with it. I mean, how different is Trevor Lawrence's career? If he didn't start off with urban Meyer, you know, I mean, there's just, there's so many examples of that. Whereas, you know, just, just switch. I know there's different timelines, but imagine Trevor Lawrence being drafted number one overall by a team that was about to bring Sean McVay in and Jared Goff gets drafted by the Jaguars with, with urban Meyer. Right. I mean, so it's, it's okay to just say, yeah, you know, with the information I had, that was my take. I have new information. Now I have a new take. I wonder if Josh Allen realizes the butterfly effect he had on the Seahawks franchise because it's John Schneider going to Wyoming, which started all the breakdown, isn't it? It's like it's true. Pretty well. Yes, I, I yeah. don't think that started the break. Do you know what I think started the breakdown? Uh, I can't remember his name now. The agent. Rogers. Oh God, Mark Rogers. Mark Rogers. Yes. I think he start as, as soon as he swapped <clears throat> agents before he did his his second contract. That was the beginning of the drama. You're probably you're probably yeah. Right. That makes because makes more I've, sense. I mean, I've I've heard stories from very very connected people about the texts that they would get from Mark Rogers two in the morning, shitting on Seahawks leadership, and it's just like, man, if this is who your franchise quarterback is hitching his wagon to, and Mark Rogers is who you have to talk to, to communicate to the leader of your franchise. I mean, that's, that's poison in the water. I mean, look, I, 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 I'm sure you all agree. I loved watching Russell Wilson play in Seattle. Absolutely. But I, I must admit, I, you just sort of, I would, I would happily watch a two and a half hour film talking about the great side of Russell Wilson and the absolute weird side of Russell <laughs> Wilson. And I would enjoy every aspect of, of that entertainment machine that it would be because it is so odd. I mean, like I just think even little things like why the hell has somebody not took him to one side and gone, do you know what, Russell, been off the Broncos uh, uh, country, let's let's ride. Let's not bother with that. You know, maybe do that after a few wins. But it's become that's become a meme. It's become a laughing stock. You know, people, the other players are taking the piss out of him with it publicly. They're tweeting or Instagramming or whatever it is. You know, the, the kicker in Baltimore did it. You know, it, yeah. it, it, you've got all of that. You've got the GQ shoots. You've got the, you know, the crazy haircuts and the crazy outfits, the Halloween costumes, the, the crazy agents, the, you know, this, this, I mean, I read the tweet that you were referencing. I, I, was, I looked that up, you know, Russell Wilson's pushing for Brian Schottenheimer to come back. What's going on here? You know, this is just... The voices, the different tones. Well, and how dangerous the failed was it? businesses, uh, the yeah. failed yeah. podcasts, failed stuff, podcast businesses. Yeah, just just everything. set aside. Someone someone needs to change his TikTok password, and and I mean honestly, they should just take his phone away for the rest of the season. <laughs> get get back to earning. You know uh, what got what you about, into this position as a pitch man, said. anyway. What about Marshall? Yeah. You can't, you yes. can't get can't hold get of him. him. You have to go through his people. How is that a thing? Like the the number of people who ring me every day who I have 
you know, very little time to speak to. I don't know why they're ringing me, but they are. You know, why can't Russell Wilson's closest teammates get hold of him? That makes no sense whatsoever. How have they yeah. not got a direct line to Russell Wilson? Why well, won't you take a call from Marshawn? His teammates are such proud people. Anyone in the NFL is. It's so hard to get to where they are, and it's so hard to stay there. And to see this guy making so much more money when he's actively hurting your team. And, and I, you know, maybe conversations in the locker room are different, but from the outside looking in, there doesn't seem to be any accountability from him saying, you know, like it's, it's just all he equivocates everything. And it's, it's just, it's a tough place to be. And, and the thing I was going to say that really caused my ears to perk up and some red flags to pop up as well was when Nathaniel Hackett came in and, maybe it wasn't his introductory press conference. It was early on talking about what his relationship with Russell Wilson was going to be like. And he, he talked about them like they were going to be friends. And I'm just like, oh man, that is so, so dangerous, especially as an unproven coach to come in and basically say like, yeah, we're going to lead this team together. Like there has to be that separation between the coach and, and the quarterback. It's not to say they can't be friendly. It's not to say they can't like each other. It's not to say they can't work hand in hand you cannot hand Russell Wilson the reins to the franchise. You just can't do it. No. Uh, yeah. So that's a pretty healthy state of the union, including Broncos quarterback related, uh, uh, digs, I guess. Adam is just standard ped pod. If, uh, well, I was going to say, speaking of Russell Wilson, let's, uh, have a spin in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I I posted on our, our chat we've got uh, Jackson you you, you you shouldn't publicly enjoy podcasts with other people much better interviews and probably me and Adam are, uh, uh, much better podcasts than me and Adam are producing 15 minutes before we jump on a pod so I'm, I'm going to have to the easy get out has been obviously but we, like Adam said we, we see the tweets Jackson we see the tweets <laughs> <laughs> No, nah, man, I, I'm always really excited to get a chance to come on <laughs> to this show, man. I, I, I was looking forward to this uh, a great deal and I, I know it's late for you guys. I, I could, I could wrap Seahawks with you guys football in general for another hour. No problem. Uh, I, I mean, don't, don't try us Jackson. Cause uh, <laughs> we, we've gone later than this and Rob, Rob's just had breakfast. So don't worry about him. Uh, I, I've got a, maybe a slightly contrary bin to uh, the sort of expected narrative. The Jeff Saturday stuff has thrown up an awful lot of uh, of discourse. And something that has struck me is that people inside the NFL treating this as like the worst thing that's ever happened to the game. It strikes me as a little bit of like the lady doth protest too much, just a smidge. And there's there's part of me that thinks that like, these guys who have admittedly worked their asses off to get to the position they're in, they're very cautious when the fraternity is penetrated by someone else. Um, and, you know, th- there's this idea that, like, well, if you haven't done 30-hour days for eight days a week and 60 weeks a year, you have no place working in the NFL. Sorry, my dog is clearly equally as upset uh, with what's going on. Um, and uh, it-, it strikes me as that... You know, obviously these guys have worked really hard, but, you know, when we were at school, we had to learn our times tables because, you know, the, the calculators, you know, we didn't use them as much. Well, it's now 2022 and now kids don't need to learn the times table because the world moves on. And, you know, if I'm not saying that I think Jeff Saturday should be an NFL head coach, but if this opens up a way that 
you know, minorities who aren't as able to work in the coaching fraternity can can get jobs or or women can get jobs in the NFL where where you know it's such a closed shop to these you know bros in the NFL. There's part of me that just wonders, and I've seen Rob nodding away a bit, so maybe he agrees, but like, Rob, why, why can't you be a, a head scout if you could be bothered to do it? You put the work in. Um, uh, uh, let's, let's it strikes talk, me as there's a very, very closed circle that people aren't happy as being penetrated by someone from outside of it. Yeah, let's not go too far. Let's not get too crazy there, <laughs> uh, like putting me in. It's late, it's so, late. Yeah, but I think you're right on the head coaching thing, because when you actually think about it in England, this happens all of the time where a coach gets fired and then the youth coach takes over or the fitness. I mean, like in, we had a coach in, in the, in the team here, local to me, Rotherham, who was the fitness coach. He came in in a caretaker capacity. He ended up keeping the job for six years. He's one of the single most wonderful people I've ever spoken to. He's now the Derby County head coach and got a promotion a few weeks ago. He is a, a fantastic person and, and would, would never have had an opportunity to be a manager if it wasn't for just somebody basically chucking him in the deep end and giving him a chance. He's also a massive NFL fan, by the way, but he's a, a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, so we'll say <laughs> less of that. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, in our country, Adam, in the sports, you know, people like Jeff Saturday, it's not unusual at all for a storied ex-player to be given an opportunity without having to spend donkey's years, you know, grinding for 17 hours a day or 26 hours a day or whatever people expect these guys to do to, to get a coaching opportunity. And look, he just beat Josh McDaniel, who has spent years and years and years coaching some of the best quarterbacks and players in, in league history with the New England Patriots. And he, and he beat him quite handsomely. And why shouldn't Jeff Saturday get the opportunity over the next few weeks to show that he belongs in a role like this. Sometimes a head coach is a CEO, as Jackson quite rightly put it. They're they're the sort of the the inspiration, they're the head honcho. They can they can have the coordinators and their positional staff to do some of the nuts and bolts. Sometimes you've just got to get up there and lead some men. And and why can't Jeff Saturday do that? He, he might fall flat on his ass in the next few weeks, but why shouldn't he get the opportunity? It's and and also the other thing is. What if Jim Ursay has just done the smartest thing in the world and thought, this guy might get me a top five pick? We've been scrambling around for a quarterback for how, how long? <laughs> this guy's going to get me a quarterback in the draft. So, well, and it's, it's a zero risk move outside of the PR fallout. And, and that's not to diminish it. I, I do think that there are legitimate arguments to be made uh, against the Jeff Saturday hire. But we're also talking about a mid, unexpected midseason pivot. You know, and and they've got a guy that carries cachet with that fan base, uh, and and in that locker room, you know, he's a a massive part of the most successful run that franchise has had since the NFL became the NFL. And you know, it's it's not the worst thing in the world to let him ride out eight games if if he wins some games unexpectedly. Then good problem to have. If he doesn't, doesn't cost you anything. Gets you a better shot at a quarterback, like, like Rob said. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss the legitimate criticisms about the process. Um, I do think that there's a lot of manufactured outrage surrounding the conversation, people looking for opportunities to get upset about something, um, you know, and, and let's, let's see how it goes. You know, if, if he goes one and seven down the stretch and gets the job next year over, you know, quote unquote, more qualified candidates. If he goes one and seven, there's just going to be more qualified candidates and they bring him back. Okay. Then I'm going to dial up my criticism of it a little bit more. As far as a, a unexpected midseason pivot, you know, Jim Ursay gave the most unhinged 
<laughs> interview about the hire that you could ever hope to see from an owner. That's Jim Mercer. He, it's, 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 it's what you get with him and hopefully they go through the due process in the off season, but I'm, I'm not overly worked up about it. And I was rooting for him to win. Yeah. And he did do a lot of overcomplicated stuff on Sunday. He just put in the better quarterback and told his airline to play better and give the ball uh, quite often to one of the best running backs in the league and Jonathan Taylor. He didn't really do. He just went literally went back to basics and yeah, but yeah, it's I mean, not I mean, even Jim Irsay is unbelievable. That press conference is a journey. It's not the Jeff Saturday side of things that it's, I have it's, the issue it's, with. It's it's this sort of paid your dues community. It's the Bill like, Cower quote, isn't it? Yes, yeah, Joe, Joe Thomas said it's the most egregious thing he's ever seen in the NFL. And I just think we need to dial that down a little bit because there is an opportunity here. Like it's just coaching sports. And I know that for them, it's the most serious thing in the world, but there is an opportunity here that perhaps if you broaden your horizons outside the, you know, the, the lunch pail blue collar community that have probably have a privilege to be in a position where they can afford to go and do all these, you know, coaching jobs for hours and hours. Maybe there is a way we can expand it slightly. Like we're just coaching sports here. And so I don't think necessarily that it needs to be uh this sort of absolute disgrace that someone from the outside is entering the world. Like maybe not Jeff Saturday, but if someone gets a job next year, you know, Mike McDaniel three or four years ago, wouldn't have been seen as, uh, as anything. And I kind of hope that someone like him is able to change the culture in the way. I think Rich Basaki said that he'd seen his kids once a week when he was a head coach for two hours. I mean, this is no way for a sport to conduct itself. There needs to be a deeper conversation about how healthy that is. Cause that just seems ridiculous yeah um also i mean it's what time is it it's half 12 it probably isn't the time to go in close to home about the nfl and closed shops adam at this point uh because we're <laughs> no, I'm, not doing, I'm not doing <laughs> today. Okay. no 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 that's not KJ what i meant, I meant. That's, discussion, not what I meant. I that's not what i meant i meant oh, the okay. nfl uk oh, God, 193 yeah. episodes and we've had more seahawks players and we've had people who um do nfl uk Rob also a big fan of NFL UK I think, and, uh, <laughs> and the people in those offices. I do have, I, you know, I want to piggyback on that for, for the bin as well. And what I want to throw in the bin is toxic leadership. And we're, we're starting to see it happen. You know, this idea of this top down asshole leadership is, you know, the league is slowly starting to deliver a referendum on that. And a lot of it is not because the league is all of a sudden awakening and becoming so much more socially conscious. It's just, it's harder to hide bad behavior now. And you're seeing that there's no place for the urban Myers or the John Gruden's anymore. We're seeing Dan Snyder get forced out. Um, we're seeing NFL teams pivot away from wanting to hire these wannabe Bill Belichick's like the Matt Patricia's and the Joe judges. And I mean, Josh McDaniels, I think is the worst, one of the worst coaches of my lifetime, you know, and, and his players hate him. They hate these guys, you know, Belichick didn't work because he was an asshole. Belichick worked because he is a goddamn football genius who spent 20 years with the greatest quarterback of all time. Bill Belichick is amazing, but it's not because he was a jerk to his players. That was a byproduct of his personality. But you get <laughs> you get all of these guys that come from the Belichick coaching tree, and they all fucking suck. And they're bringing this this asshole approach to their players, and they're just like players. They're so empowered these days. 
as they should be. It's, it's who we're showing up to watch. It's who we're paying money to watch. You, you can't just treat them like shit and, and expect my way or the highway. You know, we're, we're seeing the Sean McVeigh's and the Mike McDaniels and uh, the Sean McDermott's and, and these real Andy Reed being, you know, these are the coaches that are having a lot of success. You know, they're P Carroll, the players like these coaches and that goes so far. And it's, it's just cool to see that there's less and less of a place with each passing year for that type of leadership in the NFL. I will say this though, it's full of coaches like the ones you're talking about there, Jackson, in college football. You only have to watch college football, especially in the SEC and in some of these bigger schools where it's, you know, football is incredibly important. It's full of arseholes. Um, You just have to listen to their press conferences and their post-game interviews and the way they handle themselves on the sideline, often screaming in players' faces, being very aggressive. Um, it It is amazing how you're absolutely right that times are changing in the NFL, but they are not changing in college football quickly enough. And I think in some conferences they are. I think you could certainly look at the Pac-12 and see with the Lincoln Rileys and the Kalen DeBoers and, and at Washington State. And uh, I think even Chip Kelly has mellowed somewhat over the years. Um, but you, you, as soon as you look at the big conferences, the SEC, you, you, you start to see uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of individuals in there who, yes, they can be successful, but they are, they are not very, they don't seem to be very nice people. Entitlement goes up. Um, yeah. Uh, anyone for the game for you? Need to see if Rob's got anyone for us. Okay, mine is mine is far less serious, but I'd like to put in the bin the taxi driver who took <laughs> me on a ten-minute journey from Munich Airport to my hotel and robbed me of sixty euros for the pleasure of that. <laughs> um, I mean, he went and truly had my pants down there. But at the, the end of the journey. He, he is a listener, and, so he, he he will be deeply hurt by this. He turned around and said, would you like some gum? And I was, I was like, no, I'd like 20 euros back, please, mate. Yeah. I mean, what that was, that was that about? I mean, I, I got the train there to the airport afterwards. It took an hour and 10 minutes, but it, it cost me seven euros. So I feel like, you know, I was very smug on that train journey back. But uh, apart from that, I'm very, very positive and happy after my trip. So I, I'm not going to throw anybody else in a bin. Um Adam said it should be a uh, um, maybe toy hand at head scout. You, you, where the hell did Chef United find Ilian Ndai from? Ilian Ndai, I don't know where they found him from, but Sheffield United have got this knack of finding fantastic young players. And uh, he's the he's the best player by a mile I've seen yeah. at the Rico uh, this year. He's he's gonna he's he's gonna end up probably playing a lot more for Senegal at the World Cup because uh, Mane's out injured. So um, I think there's maybe quite a few people at Sheffield United who are gearing up for some big clubs to make an offer in January. He he could end up being a, a little star at the World Cup there if he gets an opportunity. So yeah, he's I'm, I'm with you all, all the way on that. He's uh, you know the people who know uh, Sheffield United very well uh, around here say that he's he's destined for big things. Yeah, and Jackson, how was the summer of Julio? In, over in your neck of the Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Before we, he answers that, though, how boring was that that playoff game that went on? For I was there. I was there. The atmosphere I was, was great. I, it, I, eighth, I, 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 By the end, I, everyone was ready to go home. I, I was <laughs> delinquent. I was delinquent on my mortgage to pay for that ticket that I've been waiting twenty-one years for for a home playoff game. <laughs> I mean, to their credit, they gave me a two for one. I got. I got two baseball games worth. You can't give me one run 
You make me wait 21 <laughs> years for a home playoff game. You can't score a run. But uh, to the point with Julio, man, I mean, I am just stars in my eyes, same as as anybody else. I I don't think there is one single baseball player on the planet I would trade Julio Jones for one for one right now. He's 21 years old. He is a top 10 talent already. He has got all the leadership qualities you could ever hope to have. I, I'm fortunate to be uh, friends with one of his best friends who just says he is the real deal, like no hesitation to give him that kind of money. Uh, he wants to be in Seattle. He, he didn't test free agency. He, he signed a massive contract, but he wants, he really wants to build a team around him in Seattle. He, he is Ken Griffey jr. 2.0. He's built like DK Metcalf. He, he is, he is everything. He is 10 out of 10 on everything you could want from a player. He will be the most important athlete in Seattle sports for the next 10 years. And, and it's within his range of outcomes to be the greatest Seattle athlete of all time. By the time it's all said and done. Yeah. I mean, there is a real sliding doors thing with him and the Broncos quarterback in there. Like, once an exit exit in the knee it's perfect swinging it was perfect the the torch was there to be grabbed by somebody and yeah. and he's the perfect guy to take it yeah so every, i think i tweeted a few times every time i wake up after a mariners game this summer he he'd done something ridiculous yep. yeah but he's yeah, no well, ben, ben stokes though is he no <laughs> 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 no well, my, 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 my the next time my lips was uh victor Yokerez, but that's a that's a deeper dive than anyone really gives a shit about on this pod um but yeah uh, where can people catch your stuff, Jackson? Cigar thoughts on the rest on the pod and everything. And we've heard good things on Twitter about your next podcast, your next podcast guest. So <laughs> can yeah, you better step that? out now, mate. <laughs> better, better be good. All that chat. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about myself a little bit. So um, yeah, we got uh, the Cigar Thoughts podcast. Um, the, you can check out anywhere you get your podcasts. So after you've worked through, uh, the entire discography of this podcast, uh, you can switch over to that one. And, you know, we've just been super blessed. Like you guys have to have some really remarkable guests on that show. It's, it's a treat just as a fan. And as someone who wants to know more about the team, to be able to sit down with these guys for an hour each week. And, and there's a lot of people on there who are really, really close to this team. Uh, and, and also just to the NFL in general. Um, so cigar thoughts, you can check that out. I also have an article up within three or four hours of the end of each Seahawks game. Um, it's just, it's also called cigar thoughts and, and it's just me smoking a stogie and, and making sense of what happened uh, in the Seahawks game that day. So you can also find me on Twitter for as long as Twitter continues to exist at, <laughs> at Jackson Bevins. Uh, my first name is J A C S O N. Just remember that no K is okay when spelling Jackson and uh, you can catch more of my drivel there. Cool. Uh, Rob, where can people catch your stuff? And like you said, you're building up to, a uh, big Seahawks offseason, obviously the draft in April again next year. Yep. Um, Seahawksdraftblog.com. And um, yeah, I, I think I think my article actually scared a lot of people um, yesterday, the 7,000 word. I think it was just too big. <laughs> I think people I thought, oh, you know, don't really want to read a thesis on the draft right now, you know, but, um, but if you, if you have found yourself at a loose end over the next few days, then, um, it, you know, it may take you three days, um, uh, to read it. So, um, check that out. And, it, and it's quite a lot of information about the draft. Uh, please, if you get a chance, check out the YouTube, uh, channel, uh, which is Rob Staten and, it, you know, 
you you'll find it there. Please subscribe to that and um, and yeah and uh, at Rob State and all one word on Twitter. Yeah, you were back. You were on BBC's coverage a few weeks ago, weren't you as well? Yeah, I was. I was, and I appeared from Munich um, to talk about how great Tom Brady was on uh, Sunday. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, would have would have been hosting that again on the weekend if I wasn't in Germany. So hopefully, I'll be. Uh, so if you ever happen to be uh, in a car, because um, otherwise, <laughs> why the heck would you be listening to it when you can watch Red? The glorious thing that is Red Zone. But if you happen to be in a car um, on a Sunday evening, uh, please from nine o'clock. Uh, Tune into BBC uh, Five Sports Extra, and and there's a chance that I, you know, I will be hosting the NFL coverage on there. Awesome. Rob, those of us on the way home from catering events at ten thirty on a Sunday night, <laughs> we thoroughly appreciate a bit of NFL action on the radio. So don't worry, at least I'm tuning in. Me and uh, maybe one of your family members is, tu- is tuning in to keep the ratings. Oh, up. Don't, my mum and dad never listen to anything I do. <laughs> no, I'll often say, "Dad, did you hear that?" No, don't listen to the radio. <laughs> um, but but some random person a few weeks ago told me they'd listened, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, let's be friends because uh, it, I just thought, "Wow, this is a rare somebody who is not watching." Uh, like I said, the best, the best for me, the best program on television, which is Red Zone, and that sounds mm. very geeky as well. But uh, I just think Scott Hansen and that show, you know, I could probably watch two of them back to back if I was like <laughs> away, if I was in space for a fortnight. Absolutely. And I came back and they said, "Do you want to watch back to back Red Zone?" To be like, "Yes, <laughs> <laughs> give me fourteen hours of that stuff right now." Uh, yeah, uh, Jackson mentioned some of the guests we've had on, and I think we don't have much sway on the position podcast. Uh, 193 episodes in, but we are going to start a movement over the next few weeks. Pro Bowl voting is open today, and we want to start a campaign of Get 44 to Vegas. Uh, former pod guest Nick Ballore is able to be voted, unfortunately, only once uh, per go. You can have six votes. I tried to use all six on Nick Ballore, but it's been um, supported by the beneficiary of uh, Get 44 to uh, to Vegas. So, yeah, Nick Ballore is one of the good, the good eggs. He's, he's a good... He's, a uh, good chat about 18 months ago or no is this is this our season this year this, this year. year yeah about uh, seven eight months ago so yeah get 44 to vegas hashtag on twitter social media and all the rest of it uh patreon.com forward slash position podcast spotify itunes and podbean next week we're going to be joined by another spurs fan in uh danny kelly off bbc radio back in the day as well not the american danny kelly not, Jackson. not the american danny kelly the, <laughs> the uk, danny, UK kelly. danny kelly are you seriously gonna be joined by danny kelly of the uk uh, we are indeed oh wow oh, i look forward to that yeah uh until next time massive thanks to jackson and rob as ever for spending their late early mornings and uh, early evenings with us always is appreciated until next time this has been the pedestrian podcast go hawks Cheers, fellas.